So good morning. Welcome again uh, to gathering with us, not in person, uh, but otherwise. And uh, so let me echo what Jeff has already said, that uh, this is we're, we're lamenting this reality uh, and looking forward to next week. We really believe, uh, but all the indications seem to point to next week, March 14th, we'll be back together in person. And so as we continue to struggle through, I don't know, I was going to say suffer through, but struggle through, endure through having to do this together. Just want to encourage you. Let's press into one another. Let's be encouraging and comforting and supportive and and all of those things because it's so easy to be discouraged and to become critical and cynical and we don't want to be that. And so again, we're just grateful for the technology and for the opportunity to do this together. Uh, as we did last week, there is uh, a worship folder that's in the, the description of the event that's been sent to you. Uh, You'll see in that worship folder that there's a liturgy that we follow. We usually read a portion of God's law uh, that reminds us who God is and what our obligations are to him, which leads us immediately not only to adore him, but to confess our own sins, particularly during this time of Lent, as we take more time than usual to really do some self-reflection, self-examination, thinking about our own sin as we prepare for the Easter holiday coming. And then immediately as we confess our sins, we know from the the gospel of grace that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so we read an assurance of pardon. But instead of trying to do all of that, uh, we just printed it for you. We would would ask you just take a few minutes, stop this recording, uh, and I'll start back in about 10 seconds. But take, take a few minutes. As a family or there, if you're there by yourself, just um, just take a moment to read those scriptures, pray a prayer, someone lead uh, through that process, and when you're done, you can start this recording again and we'll pursue, pr- proceed to the sermon. So take the time to do that. It would be very helpful for you, I think. Now, I hope that was a, a, a very good, enriching experience for you. We continue in a series this morning that we've been doing uh, through Hebrews chapter 11, this account of the people of faith in the Old Testament and the way that we are supposed to read these stories and be encouraged by such a great cloud of witnesses to also pursue God in faith like those we read about here. And we come this morning to the third of a series of three episodes from the life of a man named Abraham, probably the most well-known, at least the one that is the highlight of all of the others. And we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, and then jump to the story that those verses are summarizing in Genesis chapter 22, where we read about Abraham being asked by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And so let's read together from both of those places, beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And then, just to expand on that from Genesis chapter 22, we're going to read the first three verses and then skip down to verse 9. After these things, God tested Abraham, so that same word there that the Hebrews writer used. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is admittedly a difficult passage. Let's just start there. I mean, why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Surely there are limits to what God can ask, and this, this is going too far, God is asking too much, and Abraham is all too willing to butcher his own son. We have great difficulty with this passage, and I understand the sentiment, and we'll try to deal with it as we go along. But let's stop for just a minute and think about all of the different scenes in Abraham's life. And as you take it in the totality of what we've seen, you really are forced to ask the question, is this really all that surprising? I mean, think about it. God came to him at first and said, Abraham, leave your family and your home and go. And Abraham said, where? And God said, I'll show you later, but first you have to obey me and leave. And he left. And then God said, I'll give you this land. And Abraham responded by saying, when? And God said, I'll tell you later. For now, just follow me and obey me and live and walk with me. And then God came and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham said, how? And God said, I'll prove it to you later. You just have to wait for me. And he waited 25 years. And then Isaac was born. And then the Lord came to him and said, Abraham, slay your son. And Abraham said, why? He asked why. And God said, I'll explain it all later. You just have to trust me. Now, this scene is the hardest to swallow for sure, but as you think about that whole journey, it really is the crescendo. The story of Abraham has been building and building to this point. And so as you think about all of that, is it really all that surprising? I mean, what if God required Abraham to to sacrifice Isaac? What if it was a reasonable thing for him to do? That's the argument I'm going to try to make. And really, you see from Abraham that he understood it to be that as well. It says that in response to God's command here, this is verse 3 of chapter 22, it says that Abraham rose early in the morning. In other words, there was no hesitation. He didn't even wait for breakfast because Abraham had learned to obey God without his questions being answered. He asked all those questions, where and when and how and why, and the Lord refused to provide answers. And he learned that you obey even when you don't have your questions answered. And that that is the kind of obedience that faith makes possible. And it's the kind of obedience that we are to imitate. And so this story is very important to us, as difficult as it is. And here's what we want to do this morning, because we want to be kind of, this was supposed to be a communion Sunday. We were going to be much shorter in the sermon this morning. I just want to ask, or really pose these two thoughts. 
And the first is, I want to talk about why this text is so hard. There's a reason why what we read here just is so unsettling, that it really is difficult, that we, for the most part, we have a really hard time just accepting it. And I want to talk about that. Why is it that this is so hard? But then secondly, why maybe it shouldn't be? Why maybe, if you think about it and look at it a little bit closer, why maybe it's a reasonable thing for the Lord to ask here. And so we want to just look at Hebrews 11 and Genesis 22 through the lens of those two, just those two things. And so first, let's talk about why this particular story is so hard. What is it that's so difficult about this? Well, it says there at both the beginning of Genesis 22 and verse 1, and then also in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says that God tested Abraham. This was a test. And I like the way Tim Keller put it. He said that a test is something that shows you and it grows you. It shows you and it grows you. So a test is something that shows you where you are, where you're at at a particular place in time or with a particular area of your life. And then by showing you, it challenges you to grow, to push past wherever you are and to continue to move forward and and to get better. And this language is used, the same language of testing is used in other places in the Bible to describe the way God works in the lives of his people. In James 1, for example, where it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet tests, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and it's the same in 1 Peter chapter 1. God allows hard things. He allows suffering. He allows very difficult circumstances to come into our lives to reveal our spiritual health and to grow us to increase our faith, to purify our faith. This is the consistent testimony of the scriptures from beginning to end. And so despite all of his past obedience, with the birth of Isaac, something happened. God looked, he looked, and he saw a weakness developing in Abraham's faith. Abraham didn't see it, but God did. And God knew that if he did not deal with it, it could grow and become a really big problem. So he created a test to show Abraham and to grow him. Now, part of the problem, part of our problem, is that we're talking about child sacrifice. And that is just off-putting, you know, at the outset. But that misses the point of the story if we really allow that to be the thing that we wrestle with. God is asking Abraham for the main thing in his life. God is wanting Abraham to give away to him the source of his hope and joy. For him, it just happened to be Isaac, which is why he asked for Isaac. I mean, you look there in verse 2 of Genesis 22, it says, it describes Isaac as his son, his only son who he loved. And that language, this very emotive language, it's very, very um, intentional there. It is language that is meant to show the way that Isaac had become Abraham's emotional center. He, in fact, wasn't his only son. There was Ishmael, but Isaac was, very practically, his only. Isaac was his only. He was an idol. Or he'd become an idol. He was a good thing. Born to him after 25 years of waiting. A good thing that God had given. A good gift of God that had become an ultimate thing. And Abraham's attachment to Isaac had become so intense that it posed a threat to Abraham, to the rest of the family, and to God's purposes, God's mission, God's salvation in the world. Remember, Abraham was the one through which God's salvation was to come to the ends of the earth. And this is why this is such a problem. And for every one of us, the lesson here for us is that for us too, there's something in every one of our lives. There's something, some good thing that he's either become 
or is on its way to becoming an ultimate thing. A rival to God in our hearts. And God says, like he did here, God's approach to us in these things is he looks at us and he says, give it to me. Give it to me. Because if you don't, if you don't rightly reorder your love, I mean, if we don't rightly, all the time, through a continual process of faith and repentance, if we're not rightly reordering our love and our loyalty, then we'll be destroyed by these things. And so I wonder, what is your only? Think about that for a minute. What is your only? How would you finish the sentence that starts with, if only? If only I could have this, then everything would be okay. If only this was a certain way, then everything else would be all right. If you look close enough, you'll see that there's an Isaac. There's an only. And if you allow it, it will fill your life with drivenness to achieve it. You'll run over whoever you have to. You'll step on the throat of whoever you must in order to have it. Or it will drive you to despair and anger and bitterness when it's taken from you. An Isaac, right, in your life, and only will make you full of anxiety. It will keep you up at night. You'll lose sleep over it when it's threatened. And so the only way to escape all of this is for the thing that has become the center, the core, to be decentered. And that's what a test does. That's what a test is designed to do. That's what's happening here. God, God is saving Abraham, even though it feels like He's, doing, he's, he's being mean and doing the worst thing he could possibly imagine. I remember we've told this story before, and I thought it's very helpful to pull it out again. Elizabeth Elliot told a story about visiting a friend, a sheep farmer in Wales, in northern Wales. And uh, she told the story that every year this sheep farmer would take the sheep, and part of just caring for them, they, they would have to dunk the sheep into this huge vat of antiseptic. And uh, the only way to protect them was the shepherd had to completely submerge the sheep into the liquid so that every inch of their body was covered because otherwise they would be eaten, like truly like eaten alive by parasites and insects. And so they, had to, they basically had to drown these sheep uh, in, order to, in order to protect them. And now she describes the scene, and, and you know, Elizabeth Elliot has a way with words. She says this, she says, one by one, John, her friend, seized the animals and they would struggle to climb out the side and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding their ears and eyes and nose submerged for a few seconds. And listen how she puts this. She says, and, and as their Lord and Master was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of that, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? And that, in times like the time Abraham is going through here, when we're forced into those times, that might be the very thing that we think as well. But what we must remember is, just like that sheep farmer was saving those sheep through drowning them, so God is working in our lives in the same way. You know, Jesus set the conditions of being his disciple. And here's what he said. And I don't want you to just rush past this. I want you to hear the force of what he said in Luke chapter 14. Verse 26, he said, you must hate your father and mother and wife and children and siblings. You must hate your own life and take up your cross and follow me. Now I have a question. Do we just dismiss those words and say, that's silly. That doesn't mean what it 
sounds like it means, or do we take them at face value and try to make sense of them because our loyalty to him above all else demands that we obey? Now, this is hard. I'm not going to lie to you. This is hard. It's not complicated. It's hard. It stands on its own, though. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to walk away from everything else. Really, it's more than that. You have to expect at the outset, at the beginning, that following Jesus will cost you some of the things that are most dear to you, even parents and children and friends and reputation and wealth and status. And you have to be able to joyfully let them go. It's the only way. Notice the language in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where it says, Take your son, God says to Abraham, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, that's, that would have meant something very specific to the original audience. And we need to understand it if we're going to understand this passage. There were many different kinds of sacrifices, but the burnt offering was unique in that in a burnt offering, the whole thing was put on the altar and burnt up. There was nothing reserved. There was nothing held back. In other, in other cases, with other offerings, you would burn part of it to say, you know, this part is God's, and then you would keep back part of it to eat for yourself or to give to the priest or whatever the case might be. But with a burnt offering, you took the offering, and the whole thing was put on the altar and lit on fire and consumed entirely. And it represented the giving of your whole self. All that you are, all that you have, to God as an act of devotion and worship without holding anything back. And here's what we learned, that obedience to God always looks like that. It always looks like the giving of your whole self on an altar to be consumed for him. It always looks like some kind of death that will require a resurrection on the other side. Do you see what it says in Hebrews 11? It says, by faith Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac... Because he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. So faith obeys. It sees past the death that is required to the resurrection that is promised. Somehow. I mean, it may not be clear. I can't see it right now. I don't know how it's going to happen or when or through whom or under what circumstances. But somehow God's going to bring resurrection. That's what Abraham believed. And it's what all of those who follow in his footsteps, the footsteps of his faith, must believe too. because So you see, we miss the point. If we hear this story and we think, God is mean. I mean, how could he ask this of Abraham? Surely, the point is that God can ask anything of us without explanation. And if you have a God, you know, surely the point can't be that, right? But because, and if you have a God who can never tell you to do something like this, like what you read here, you don't have a God. You're your own God. If the God you serve would never cross your will and demand what might feel like the, the one impossible thing from you, then you're godless. So we should, we should read and think. We shouldn't read and think, man, I, it's, it's, you know, God can't do this to him. We should read and think, yes, this makes sense because God is worthy. He is worthy of whatever sacrifice we make because he is far better than any earthly love. And so I, I want to just admit again, this is hard, but I want to push into it a little bit and, said, and say maybe, but maybe it shouldn't be. Because what you have here, the love and the loyalty that God is asking of Abraham and of us in this story here is just the kind of love and loyalty that he has already shown. 
God is only asking Abraham to do what he has done and will do. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is the echo of God's own sacrificial love and the giving of his own son for Abraham and for us. And that's the thing we have to consider. And so it says, again in verse 19 of Hebrews 11, Abraham considered God was even able to raise him from the dead. Now, if you notice that word considered, it's the same English translation of the word that we talked about last week with Sarah. Sarah considered him faithful, it says in verse 11, but it's a different word in the original language. It's unfortunate that it's translated the same. The word here is the word logic. And so what this means, Abraham thought it out. He concluded, after, after thinking out and thinking through all of the evidence, he concluded that offering Isaac as a sacrifice was logical. It was a reasonable thing. It made sense because of all he knew to be true about God. And this means that obedience is never thoughtless. Faith is, is a consequence of thinking, not the opposite. It's not that you stop thinking and then comes faith. Faith is a consequence of thinking. It doesn't say here that Abraham knew God would raise him from the dead. He knew that God could raise him from the dead. And so Tim Keller, who really I, I should give credit to for a lot of this sermon because his sermon on this text was so good, but he says this. He says, there, and I just was caught by this by this phrase, he said, there's nothing more reasonable than to obey God even when it looks crazy. Let me say that again. There's nothing more reasonable than to obey God even when it looks crazy. That's the lesson Abraham learned. This was the last test, but it wasn't the first. Abraham had learned the lesson. Every time he tried to save his life, he lost it. And every time he lost it in obedience to God, he saved it. And so here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Then how reasonable is it to pit your wisdom against God? When it doesn't make sense, when it feels like he's drowning you, how reasonable is it to question him? He knows far more than you do. He sees the whole in its totality from beginning to end. He knows better than you the way of saving. So how unreasonable would it be to go against him even when it looks crazy? I mean, this is hard. But it shouldn't be. And in fact, what we learn is to Abraham, it was reasonable. It was the logical consequence of his theology. And so, where does that leave us? What do we learn about God from this story? What here makes him trustworthy when he asks something similar to this of us? And the answer and really what is supposed to capture our attention in this story is not Abraham himself. The answer is the lamb. Now something very specific is happening here. The ancients weren't as individualistic as we are. They, their dreams were not for individual prosperity and success. Family was the most important thing to them. And so all of the hopes and the dreams for the family were bound up in the firstborn son. And this is why the firstborn son got all of the inheritance the firstborn son was the representative of the family legally, but also all of the hopes in the future in, their, in the future of the family was all bound up in the firstborn son, but so also was all of their sin. The, the, just the, the legal representative before God of the family, which is why over and over again the Bible says that God claims the firstborn for himself. He says, you know, in the law and elsewhere, he says that the life of the firstborn belongs to me that his life is forfeit. And so in the Passover, if you remember, it was the life of the firstborn that was at stake. 
And then in Exodus 22, in Numbers 3 and other places, the life of the firstborn was forfeit unless there was a sacrifice, unless there was a payment that was made to redeem the firstborn son. And the symbolism here was a reminder. It was a reminder to the family, to all of the people, and to us. The symbolism means something like this. Because all of you are sinners, your representatives should be slain. There was a debt of sin that every family owed And so when God said to Abraham, give me your firstborn son, he knew what God meant. He was calling in the debt. And in the ancient world, this was God's way of saying, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And so Abraham would not have thought God immoral for asking him to sacrifice Isaac. He knew, in fact, that it was just for him to do so. He knew he was a sinner. And he knew Isaac was a sinner. But instead of the just sentence being carried out, Upon the guilty, we're told that just as he lifted the knife over Isaac to slay him, a voice from heaven came and halted him. And Abraham looked and he saw a ram caught in a thicket and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering in Isaac's place. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And when we get a glimpse into the way that God will ultimately deal with sin, and the sin debt that we all owe, it was because it was on this spot, this very spot centuries later that the temple was built in Jerusalem. We know that from Second Chronicles chapter 3. And for hundreds of years, lambs were slain in the place of worshipers as a payment for their sin debt, where the ransom price was, was brought for the firstborn sons of Israel so that the, the, that the family might be uh, forgiven and washed clean. But even that, even that practice for all those hundreds of years was not God's ultimate plan for taking away the sins of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said this. He said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Now, what does that mean? It means that in this test, in this experience with the Lord, Abraham got a unique insight into the way of salvation that would ultimately come through Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years later on almost the exact same spot again, just a few 100 yards from where this took place, God would walk up into these same mountains with his son. And just like Isaac, Jesus would carry the wood for his sacrifice on his back through the streets of Jerusalem. And God offered up his only son, the one he loved, as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, who was crucified in our place. But this time, the sword of God's justice was not stayed. It ran through him piercing him so that we might be spared. And so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that God would ask you to give him the thing that you hold most dear. It's just what he's already done for you. Here's the Christian gospel. God, in love for you, gave his son, his only son, as a substitute in your place. The the sword of justice should come down upon you, but Jesus has taken your place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, it says here that by faith, this is Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham offered up Isaac. In other words, it was his faith that allowed him to trust God. He knew God personally. He knew God by name. Look there, verse 14 in the Genesis passage. The Lord will provide That was God's name, and he named the place after the Lord. As they were going up the mountain, if you read back into the text, they're they're going along, and it begins to dawn. It began to dawn upon Isaac. He said, Father, 
I see the wood and I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice that we're going to make? And Abraham responded to his son by saying, son, God will provide himself a lamb. I don't know when or how or where, but I know him. I know that that he is a God who provides every time. And so even if it means death, he will bring about resurrection. He will see to it. He always has. He always will. That was Abraham's faith. And for us, it means that the only way for you to pass the test, like Abraham, the only way for you to pass the test is to know God personally, to know him by name. Abraham got a distant glimpse of what all of this ultimately pointed to. We have a front row seat in the gospel of Jesus. And here's the lesson. The apostle Paul in Romans 8 reasoned it out like this. He said, if God did not spare his own son, won't he also with him give us all things? In other words, if God would provide for my ultimate need in Jesus, can't I trust him to provide for all of my other needs too? In response to Abraham's obedience, God said to Abraham, Abraham, now I know. Because you've done this, now I know that you love me. Now I know because you have not withheld your only son from me. And here's what I would say to you, friends, listen. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I, we can now say to God, Father, now I know. Now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you loved. Now I know. Now I know that you will see to it in everything else. Now I know that whatever I stand to lose from being faithful to you is nothing compared to what you have lost in being faithful to me. Now I know that whatever death you might call me into, it will lead to resurrection. You are God who provides. I can let go of all earthly attachments. You are all I need. That is the voice of faith. Look at the very last words of the text. In Genesis, this is verse 14, it says, there just ends with a summary statement where Abraham says, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And that verse is a matrix for life with God. And it means this, that you don't get all of your questions answered down at the foot of the mountain. You have to make the climb. You don't always get the assurance of how or when the resurrection will come before you start out. You have to go through the mountain of obedience to see the way God provides. And it's only as you obey, not before you obey, it's as you obey that the clarity, that the wisdom, that the confidence ultimately comes. So how do you pass the test? Faith. Just like Abraham, you have to know God from personal experience and then think out the logic of what you know in real time as you go through these experiences. And so listen, look again at Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at him there dying in your place. As you see him, you'll be able to say, now I know. John Newton, who wrote many hymns, I came across a hymn of his that I was unfamiliar with this week, but I, I love it so much. I don't, I don't know, it's not really titled, but here's, what he, here's how he was thinking these things out just as we conclude together this morning. He says this, be gone, unbelief. Be gone, unbelief. My Savior is near and for my relief will surely appear. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. 
Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As we move out in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for this high watermark of the scriptures, this wonderful story which at first seems very daunting and fearful, uh, but it's full of comfort uh, to those who believe that you, it's it's an echo not just of the obedience that we owe to you, but of the faithfulness that you've shown to us in the giving of your dear son, the Lord Jesus. And so may we be so enraptured with him this morning that we that we are not even able to hardly think about anything else. Put our mind on him. Set our gaze upon him by your spirit. Come and massage these truths into our heart. Come and apply the reality of the gospel, the good news of our, of our justification and our being made righteous by Jesus Christ alone and of the acceptance and the love that the God the Father now has for us. Make us so enraptured by that that we can scarcely even think of anything else, of how disappointed we might be at being home today instead of here in church, or of how overwhelmed we might be by the circumstances that we face, or how scared we might be of the death that we're having to endure while we wait for resurrection. Whatever it might be, Father, embolden us. Embolden us to live, meeting the challenges and the tests that you bring into our lives with faith that looks to you in light of Jesus and says, now I know. Now I know that you're good. Now I know that you are trustworthy. Now I know that I can, that I can believe you to bring about good, despite whatever it is I might be going through. Now I know and to live with the boldness and the confidence that comes with that so that we might be people of radical obedience because you are worthy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. You know, I'm well aware that as you think through the implications of this passage, for you, for some, it may literally be, I mean, it may be so straightforward and direct that the Lord would say to you, look, uh, you're going through a hard time with a child and God is saying, give him to me. Or it may be that you're going through some other difficulty, a, a loss of a job or a contemplation of a job change, and the Lord would say, give it to me, whatever the test might be. Uh, if we live a life of faith, it means that we're going to constantly be coming to this, to this place where the, really the cry of our soul is, is just the memory verse that we're memorizing this, this month in March. Uh, and, it, and it's from Second Chronicles 20. It says this, we do not know what to do, <laughs> but our eyes are on you. I mean, that is the cry of faith. Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to set my gaze upon you. And so I would encourage you as you wrestle uh, with this text today. Receive this word of benediction. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your eyes and see God who, because the hand of judgment came down upon his son, the Lord Jesus, I can, as his representative, now lift my hands over you to pronounce a blessing upon you. This This is what faith in Jesus does. We would say, Lord, our eyes are upon you, so lift up your eyes to the Father in heaven under whose smile you can live your whole life and receive these words of benediction as he sends us now, not from this physical location, but in all the places that we're already scattered into the world as his representatives and ambassadors to share this good news of Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.
We'll see you next week. Go in his peace.